This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Trish. And this is the Don't Give a 50 podcast. Let's make getting old the new gold, as you say. I like that. I like that one too. That was mine. (laughs) That was mine. Hi, 50-ishers. It's Mel and Trish. Welcome back to this week's episode of Don't Give a 50, a podcast for midlife women who dare to be awesome and don't give a 50, like us. Special shout out to our 50-isher, Lamarsney, for her 50 and lovely review on our sister's episode. She wrote, I love listening to you and your guests every Monday. Thanks for this week. Nothing better than listening to sisters with such a bond. Keep up the good work. So thank you so much. Thank you. We appreciate it and appreciate the fact that you, our 50-ish tribe, are generously spreading the word that we are out there. If you haven't yet, please rate, review and share our podcast with a friend. It might brighten their day. It certainly brightens ours. So again, thank you. This week, we are excited to welcome back relationship expert, researcher and doctor specialising in psychiatry, Dr. George Blair West. You may recall we had the pleasure of interviewing George in the lead up to Christmas, where he gave us some seriously excellent and timely relationship advice to help navigate what can be a very tricky time for many families, as well as some tips on avoiding the complete disaster of grandma getting punched in the face on Christmas (laughs) Day. Always makes me giggle. (laughs) To find out more, you'll have to scroll back through our past episodes and trust us, it's worth it. 
George's impressive bio includes his TED talk on how to choose a life partner and decrease the risk of divorce, which has had over 3.5 million views. He's been married to his wife, a practicing psychologist, Penny, for 33 years, so clearly knows a thing or two about yes, relationships. Absolutely. Today, we are thrilled that joining the conversation is his daughter, Jiveny Blair West. Jiveny is a dating and attraction coach who specializes in teaching singles how to bypass superficial attraction strategies and focus on building the sustainable attraction needed to attract a high-quality partner and secure a satisfying long-term relationship. Her signature nine-week course, The Alchemy of Attraction, helps women aged 20 to 70 to develop their relationship wisdom and empower themselves to take action and find true love. We'll put the details on how you can find out more in our show notes. This awesome father-daughter team have co-authored a fascinating book, How to Make the Biggest Decision of Your Life, Unlocking the Secrets to a Healthy, Lasting Relationship. Their insight and thoughts on this subject is what we are grateful to be sharing with you today. George and Jiveny, a very warm welcome to you both. Hello. So lovely to have you both here. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. I love your podcast. Thank you. (laughs) We all... Thanks, George. Thanks, George. We, I think it's funny how we always sound so surprised when somebody tells us they love our podcast. I'm like, really? 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 It's so genuine. I've been listening to it all morning and I love it. I'm going to keep listening to it. I love that. Thank you. Thank Legend. You. So picking a partner for some is an enormous decision, especially now as statistics indicate we are living much longer. When we are young, we tend to get swept away with the idealisation of love, romance, dream of meeting and being swept off your feet by your true love. I think I did. (laughs) Oh, my God, we all did. (laughs) You know, being struck by Cupid's bow or experiencing an amazing metaphysical connection. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. I don't think I had one of those. I think I did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she's having. Fairy tales, movies and romance novels have a lot to answer for, setting an expectation that, of course, everything will be fixed with true love's kiss. But finding a partner can be fun. Why not aim high, dream big, manifest it, sow those wild oats, have a good go, take some risks. When we do get it right, we are married for a long time. (laughs) We are often warned to be wary that the wild romance spark or initial electricity can be misleading and peter out. Then you also have to factor in the often tricky part that the one you are romantically and physically attracted to, your pick, may not pick you. Hmm. George, what is your book, The Biggest Decision of Your Life? all about. Yeah, it's pretty much all about everything you just said. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great response. You've covered it because... I think one of the the problems that, <laughs> that really prompted this whole book to come into being is that we are dominated from a young age with this incredibly romantic notion of what love is. And we all want it to be romantic. That's something that I think Jib and I come back to quite a lot. I mean, we're both at heart romantics, but if we don't balance out the heart with the head, then we line up for an enormous amount of pain. You know, we've got to remember the divorce rate, it is coming down, but the divorce rate, you know, has peaked at over 40% in most Western parts of the world. I was invited to, to speak by the Hungarian government because they have divorce rates of over 65%. Now, what this means is that these romantic notions that we have been fed from a very young age that become part of our our, our folklore and, and our sense of what a relationship looks like 
is built around something that is romantic. And we have very little to balance that out. And if we don't balance it out, then we end up facing divorce, which is an incredibly painful procedure, of course, not just for the, the two people involved, but but for children. And it's because I, I, I work more than Jiminy does at that end of the world. That was what my motivation was for, for doing it. I came at it from the, the back end, if you like, of seeing all of that hurt and pain. And so often I would hear stories about issues that were obvious from when they were dating, that if they'd if they'd been educated, if they'd if they understood what was happening, what those red flags were, then they could have dodged the pain that they went on to have. I mean, that's the way I guess I think about our book in in a nutshell, Jim. You might have a you've got a different angle on I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I think the bottom line is what we're really playing with is that love is not enough. And that's a message that we're given from a very young age or that we have been, thanks to Disney, um, that one day we'll fall in love and love is all you need. Love is enough and everything will work itself out. So those red flags, those pink flags that have been coming up, you don't need to worry about that because as long as there's love there, you guys can work it out. Mm -hmm. So we're really speaking to myth-busting that whole idea And recognizing too that we could potentially fall in love with all different kinds of people. There's a statistic we talk about in the book where this mathematician did the maths to figure out hypothetically how many people could we fall in love with. And if we were able to meet everyone in the world, hypothetically, it could be around 250,000 people that we could potentially fall in love with. Wow. Mm. So recognizing that the journey is less about just finding someone who you feel love for, but figuring out who's going to be most compatible with the life that we want to live and that we can have those loving feelings for. It's not about either or. So ah, beautifully put, yeah. I, I, I tell you what, May all I call of you, Jiminy. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Me, I've already shortened your name. We're great friends now. Thanks, Jim. You're welcome. Sorry, Jiminy. <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated also definitely by what you said about the the mathematician and the statistics and about the 250,000. That's fascinating to me. But also, George, why the Hungarian government? Why do you think, and this is sort of, I know I'm jumping around all over the place a little bit, but why is the divorce rate so high in Hungary of all places? Yeah, Hungary and a couple of other very traditional countries in Eastern Europe are suffering with this problem. And it's largely because I think they're holding on to traditional values in a world that has left a lot of that behind, particularly when it comes down around to the to the rights of women. Yeah. And I think that the knowledge that the internet is allowing to be accessed from all parts of the world is sending a message to a lot of women in traditional countries that I don't have to put up with being treated as a chattel, as as something that is owned by my my partner, which unfortunately is, if you boil it down, the way that traditional marriages would work. And that's the, the reason why the, the, the government, they're not actually terribly concerned about their divorce rate. What they're concerned about is their fertility rate. And their fertility rates have been falling dramatically. And the reason why they're concerned about that is because that has an economic implication for the country in that if you don't have children and a population growing, Australia, you know, they, have a, they, they had a population fertility rate that dropped down to 1.3 you know, children per couple. Australia only runs wow. at around 1.8, but we solve the problem by bringing in lots of immigration and we don't understand how much we need immigration to grow our economy. 
So that's a whole other rabbit hole to go to go down. But you invited me to. I did. No, I think it's so, so interesting. I was just so fascinated by the Hungarian connection. But yeah. anyway, yes. They've now got Thank the World you. Wide Web and they're seeing what we're up to and they're like, damn straight. We want a that, bit of that. Yes. <laughs> George, you mentioned in your book that not making a decision becomes a decision in itself. The fact that most people tend not to consciously choose their partner has dire consequences that pervade our culture. So tell us a bit more about consciously choosing a partner. Yeah, I wrote a whole chapter on this, took a deep dive into the way in which human beings deal with decisions. And at the end of the day, the the bottom line is that we're not actually very comfortable making a decision. In fact, the derivation of the word decide is the same as that for homicide and suicide, decide meaning to kill off. So when we take a decision, we actually have to kill something off. And hey, understandably, we don't like killing things off. So we've got a bad habit as humans of not taking decisions and letting things just flow. And of course, there is nowhere that happens more than in relationships. I don't know how many times when I asked how people ended up in a relationship that resulted in a terrible acrimonious divorce, and we talk about what happened early on, and I get the phrase or a version of it, you know, one thing led to another. And then we got, then we moved in, and then we got, then we thought we were going to get married, maybe we got pregnant first. And what you get is these series of non-decisions that make up for, well, the biggest decision in your life. You know, it happens by default. And, and in that chapter that I wrote about that, I looked at this research of this guy called Banfield who was looking at what made people successful in life generally. You know, he wasn't talking about necessarily financial success, but, but that was part of it. But he was just talking about, you know, people doing what they set out to do. And he found that people who were most successful at life, and I think this is just so true of, of choosing a partner, were the ones who looked at the long-term consequences of their decision. Now, if you're going to sit and think about what's the what's the 12-month, five-year consequences of this decision, you've got to be making a decision, right? So the, the, the first thing it does is if you're thinking about those long-term consequences is it forces you to actually make a decision and not have one, one thing lead to another. We, we also wrote a chapter in the book all about how we chain ourselves together one link at a time through these, these this process of taking allowing one thing to lead to another, you know, like moving in together or simple things like buying a pet together. A simple thing like that, that, that is just another thing that that links you together. And of course, if you ask, if I ask a patient, look, if you marry this this person, how do you think they're going to be as a partner when they settle down in two years' time? How, how do you think they'll be as a father? And they'll often stop and think about that for the first time and go, oh, he loves to party. He loves to go out. He's great, but I don't know how he's going to be when it comes to staying at home with a screaming three-month-old. And that's the kind of thinking, that forward planning that sits behind the decisions that, hit, that sit behind being more successful in life. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it seems quite calculated, doesn't it? But it's actually so important to do that. So important. And it's almost like um, avoidance behaviour, isn't it? Like the well, whole linking the chain together and not really addressing some of the, the big issues that are raising But I think raising too, a lot of the time when you're making these decisions, you're quite young. Your head's in the cloud. Yeah, right. Like, like, I mean, <laughs> even mid-20s to late-20s, you're starting to get a little bit more decisive and, and a little bit clear on who you are and what you want long-term. No, but, that was mid-30s for me, girlfriend, <laughs> mid-30s. Mid-50s. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, when a lot of those decisions or, or yeah. things are happening, as Georgie said, it just kind of one thing leads to another, yeah. leads to another, leads to another, and True. you're kind of going with the flow. Mm. 
you do have an opinion of what you want, but... Can I, can I come in there, Tricia? Yeah. Because this brings up one of the other issues that I know we've got there to talk about, so we might as well come to it now, which is the age at which we marry. Yes. Yes. Now... <laughs> <That's> yes. <laughs> when we look at the data around divorce rates, the single biggest predictor of divorce is the age at which you get married. Nothing comes close to that. Wow. And so what this means is that if you get married in your late teens, early 20s, then your divorce rate will be four times that of somebody who gets married in their late 20s, early 30s, quadruple, right? If you get married in your mid-20s, your divorce rate is double what it will be again in your late 20s, early 30s. And one of the big reasons why divorce rates are coming down is simply because millennials have been getting married later. Yeah, yep. true. So the average age of getting married now is around about 30 and a half for women and about 32 for men. That has looked after the problem more than any single other thing we could do. And it's because of what you girls were just talking about, which is that in, in your late teens, early 20s, we're not thinking about this stuff. No. We don't even know who we are, what we want out oh, of Oh, so life. true. We don't know what it is that we want from a partner. We don't even know what we want from ourselves. In fact, the, the, the data shows that our personalities in our early 20s do not correlate with our, our, our personality that sort of solidifies out in our midlife, you know. And so if we compare early 20 with early 50, there's almost no, no correlation. If you come back and compare people's personalities in their early 30s with their early 50s, high-level correlation. Yeah. So what happens is when I see a couple of divorced or one half of a couple of divorced and, and I'd say, what happened? And they'd say, well, we just grew apart. That's actually a pretty good description of what happened yeah. because they were two different people 10 years after they were when they were 21. Oh, so fascinating. That's so interesting. And Mel, yet again, you and I are textbook statistics, well, we, both being married we're Gen in our early 30s. Yeah, the odd Gen Xer that gets married mid-30s. I was 35. Yeah. Trish, what were you? 32. There you go. Yeah, there, there you, go. you go. Okay. So, Jiveny, mm. having a partner can be a choice, but for some of our peers, they haven't married. They've lived awesome full lives. Some are newly single. Some are on the cusp of deciding if they would prefer to be single. And some, that choice hasn't necessarily been theirs. As part of a younger generation of women, we'd love to hear your opinion. Is the notion that having a partner being a milestone or something desired to be met, even once considered a measure of success potentially, back in the period times, <laughs> Mel and I both love a period drama, <laughs> um, taking into consideration now fertility treatments, we're much more free with our behaviours and people don't judge them as much. You know, you can sleep with someone now without getting your head chopped off for whatever reason. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is a partner that important in these times? Why do you think choosing a partner is the most important decision of our lives? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it shouldn't really be seen as a measure of success it's not like a must-have. And I think ideally if we're going to go looking for a relationship, it's better for it to be something that we want than something that we feel that we need to complete us. Yes. It's much healthier to be coming from that perspective. But I think 
we are human beings. We do crave connection. And one thing that I always think of that my dad said to me since I was young is, Jiminy, there's nothing to life but relationships. And that's not necessarily romantic. That's all our relationships, our friendships, our yep. connections with colleagues. So true. But it's such a fundamental aspect of life. And I think many people do naturally crave to have a really intimate bond and connection with someone. And that can be a beautiful thing. I think one of the beautiful things about the time that we're living in too is that we have so much more flexibility around what kind of relationship we want to be in and it doesn't have to be the cookie-cutter approach to relationships and I do see a lot of women over 50 in particular if they've had a marriage or a long-term relationship that has ended, they don't necessarily want to go back to that. They want to experience dating in different kinds of relationships and sometimes we can see maybe you would agree that your 50s can be a bit of a renaissance of your 20s in some ways. But coming back to why it is such a big, important decision, if you do choose to have a monogamous relationship with someone or if that's something that you're looking for, is that nothing else in life will have such an influence on your life experience, your mental health, your physical health, your financial health, your quality of life. And if we choose the wrong person, a toxic relationship can take over your life, your whole mental space, your ability to function, your ability to feel connected to yourself. So we're vulnerable through the process of committing to someone and being in a relationship. And so that's why the choice really warrants some careful consideration Mm -hmm. of who we decide to let into our life and to um, give that investment of our time and our energy because the wrong person is going to push us down a pretty dark track, but the right person can add so much value and so much beauty to our lives. Oh, it's so true. And haven't we seen that just with some of our friends' um, experiences as well? Yeah, it's amazing. And like you said, the influence across the board, mental health, emotional health, financial health, physical health, everything. Because, yeah, the, the women that I speak of that are single that haven't made that choice, they've got great lives. They've also yeah. got great relationships with everyone in them. So they're still feeling that love and connected. Mm. They make all of those other decisions by themselves for their own mental health and mental clarity or whatnot. But when you're with a partner, you have to consider their, you have to be considerate of them basically and mm. vice versa. And that isn't always a two-way street. And, um, yeah, I think we're getting a lot more educated about that now. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's important for us to have periods in our life where we are single. And we have to remember that being in a relationship is not necessarily any better than being single. And there's so much power and beauty that can come from being single. It's when we really get to know ourselves and to do what we want in the way that we want it. And we can get a lot of pleasure and enjoyment of life coming from that perspective. And I think it's a really good stage of our lives to really honour and to really appreciate and soak up every moment of that. You get the whole bed to yourself, you know, what a perk. (laughs) I know. I I think that we can't really choose a partner well until we have spent that time with ourselves. I've had patients who have just moved from relationship to relationship. They literally almost, it appears that they're so uncomfortable with themselves, which isn't quite true, but that they've got to be in a relationship. And so they take literally the next kind of guy that comes along and they dive straight back in again. And so this time that Jibby is talking about around spending time celebrating being single is more than just not getting into the wrong relationship. It's about really developing your sense of self, clarifying your needs and what kind of a relationship you want to be in. It's the stuff that happens in that 20 years between 20 and 30 
that we need to be doing so that when we do make a final decision in our late 20s, it's going to be a much better one. Yeah. So true. It makes sense. So true. And I know that when you're younger and you're in a relationship and you get your heart broken, it, it's almost that sense of self-worth and you see it happen to women and men. Like they don't really feel that sense of self-worth if they don't have someone else wanting them or being in a relationship with them. They think that there's something wrong with them. Why aren't they coupled up rather than seeing it as an excellent time to live? Mm, I know, Melinda, we have spoken about our younger single years (laughs) with mixed emotions at times. (laughs) Like part of you goes, oh, you know, we had bouts of being single for long periods of time and at the time we were like what's wrong with us yeah (laughs) but now looking back we go that was fun (laughs) and we'll leave it at that (laughs) I wonder if part of the question that I have for Jiv is Jiv do you think that your generation is a bit more comfortable with spending time not being in a relationship because I'm also thinking here about the the relationship to, to Sex has changed a bit, so I don't think there's such a need to be in a relationship to satisfy sexual needs. I think that's so true. I have two nieces, or three nieces, two of them that have been single recently and they are on the dating apps and are quite open and it just sounds so much easier to meet people or to get that need met than it was when we were single. I think read without, the the lines. without the label. Without the I don't label. know how yep. many millennials are listening to this. I think they should listen to this. But I think it's good to remind them of that because dating apps can be a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, yes, they give us access to so many more people and that can be a really great tool for us to get out there and to hone our dating school skills and have different experiences. But there's also a lot of frustration that people feel when it comes to dating apps because it's a, what's the word? Dangerous. It's a bit of a synthetic Uh, situation to meet someone and it's difficult to convey a three-dimensional person through a two-dimensional profile and so it can be tricky to actually make that connection. And I guess Um, to know their sincerity mm. of you know are they looking for someone or are they just looking for something? Yeah it is good that I think that conversation is a lot more open these days particularly within the millennial generation in that we're willing to talk about that more up front and that, yeah, we're, talk, we're having discussions about different kinds of relationships, polyamorous relationships, monogamous relationships, hookups, friends with benefits, that kind of thing. It's all on the table for discussion. Yeah. I know some of those, but I don't know other. I still don't get what's polyamorous. So that's like um, having multiple partners, but in a committed relationship. So you could be oh, okay. committed to multiple people. Right. Yeah. Very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think there would be people out there of our generation happy to go oh, along with that. Oh, no judgment, absolutely. Um, maybe back in the day they were called it. swingers. <laughs> I think the, the hardest couple. thing, like, to get one's head around with that to myself is like time. How how do you oh, find the yeah. time? For I know part? libido, time, busy, busy, exactly. busy. And yeah. you know, there's a lot of you would have to be so comfortable and confident with your self worth and in your relationship. I don't think it's something that. It's not for me. It would destabilise a lot of people, I would yeah. imagine. It would mess with their heads. My, my experience is that most people in polyamorous relationships actually have got a degree of intimacy anxiety. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Yep. And this allows them to have a relationship that actually isn't too intimate by having it, by effectively sharing it with two or three people. 
it actually stops you having a, a an intimate relationship, which is the other side of the coin. I think for those of us who are interested in having an intimate relationship with all of the challenges that go along with having somebody who knows you well, I mean, the, the ancient Greeks had a lovely conceptualization of marriage. They said that Basically, we get married so that somebody can get to know us well enough so that they can identify all of our shortcomings <laughs> so that we can ultimately learn from them. Yeah. I think Gordo's ticked those boxes. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's not, I think, why most people think they get married, yeah. uh, to, to get somebody to know them well enough to be able to point out to them everything that they're, that they're doing wrong. <laughs> and, I think I may have even had that conversation on the way home from the movies last night. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, but yeah that's all part of intimacy yeah yeah and I guess then um people then they don't have to let their guard down would you say that's part of it too George Absolutely. like if, if they have that fear of intimacy if they're in these polyamorous relationships and they don't have to let their guard down they never fully reveal themselves or expose themselves um, and I don't mean expose yeah. that way, Trish. But then there's another way of looking at it. They could fully let their guard down in an intimate sense without feeling vulnerable that anyone's going to be too close. Maybe. To yeah, that's another one for George. But we could spend hours on that, couldn't we? Well, well, one thing we just need to quickly say is I don't think intimacy and sex have any relationship. Yep. When I talk about intimacy, mm. I'm talking about well, there's this you know, little popular saying, into me, see. It's, it, it, intimacy is, is really about people really getting to know you. It does mean getting to know you, sure. Yeah. And that's way more threatening than getting your gear off, getting naked. <laughs> yeah, true. So true. Well, maybe well, mid-50s. It's oh, yeah. <laughs> getting a bit closer. <laughs> Yeah, no. Both oh. both are quite frightening. So um, we all get swept away in what's often referred to as the honeymoon period of a new relationship. Jeff, can we talk about the red and green flags? And you also mentioned before pink flags. I'm dying to hear your answer. <laughs> yeah, so pink flags are ones that haven't necessarily turned red yet. Okay. But we might want to pay attention to. I think the important thing to recognise with this conversation Like kind around... of three pink flags, you're out type thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing to keep in mind when we're talking about red and green flags is that any one on their own isn't necessarily a red flag. It's we want to be looking at the bigger picture of the pattern. And so when you're seeing a pattern emerge, then that would become a red flag and definitely something to pay attention to. But sometimes people can have a a genuine reason for their behaviour that isn't necessarily red flag. So, for example, an important one to consider in the early stages of dating is, is this person showing me genuine interest? Are they asking me questions, follow-up questions? And are they, if we're seeing each other over a series of dates, are they remembering those key details? Are they paying attention? Mm. And so on a first date, if a man or a I'm the, it doesn't have to be a man, <laughs> <laughs> I find often the biggest complaint I get is that men aren't asking follow-up questions on a first date and that could genuinely be just because they're nervous. Yeah, and, true. Sure. You know, they're just releasing that energy and talking about themselves and it's mm -hmm. all coming out. So giving them the benefit of the doubt the first time but still registering it, still paying sure. attention to whether or not this is going to become a, better, a bigger pattern. Yeah. That that's so a, that's a good one, isn't it? The patterns. Yeah, a couple other flags because there's so many that we – there's just an endless list. Really. Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. Yeah. But a few important ones that I thought I'd come back to. So one of the biggest ones is as we're building the relationship, building a relationship is about building trust and building that intimacy over time, not all at once. We don't want to lay all of our cards on the table at once. 
But as we start to build that intimacy, we want to pay attention. And this is why it's good to start with small things when we bring vulnerability into the conversation. We want to pay attention to how that vulnerability is handled. We want to make sure that they're not going to use sensitive information against us in an argument later mm-hmm. on. Oh, yeah. And so really that would be a huge red flag if they do at any point bring something up to use it to weaponize And almost like that gaslight you. effect that they talk about now. Yeah. Well, mm. gaslighting, I guess, is a little bit different in that it's like telling someone they're imagining things. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And invalidating their perspective, yeah. essentially. I guess where I was coming from is potentially they could focus in on those vul- vulnerabilities that they have shared and use those vulnerabilities against them in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, that also is a nice lead into a green flag because a, a green flag is when you give somebody some of that information that Jiv was just talking about where you've made yourself vulnerable and you give them information that requires trustworthiness to hold it and you look to see how they hold that and use it over time. And so it becomes a a, a red flag if they, worst case scenario, when there's an argument, throw it back at you and, and use something that you've given them when when you've been vulnerable as a weapon in an argument and but if they if they don't and they and they hold those things that you've shared with them with respect then that's actually a green flag that's a, a building of a foundation for a healthy relationship mm, that's such a good point isn't it you, you can see how these things kind of link in together and and this is why i get very concerned when i hear anybody who fell in love and 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 proposed and we're getting married after a very brief courtship because this is this is a yeah. process. This takes time. This is what we need to, you know, this is why we need to spend, I would, well, we talk about this in the book, don't we, Jim, in terms of the ideal time frames, which depends a bit on how old mm-hmm. you are. But, you know, this is why roughly you want to have a year of courting, a year after you propose of, of being, you know, fiancé, and then a year before you have children. Over those three years, and if we start that process, you know, I'm talking in ideal numbers here at sort of 28. Yep you know, when you're relatively mature in your own personality, then what's happening here is just a natural process that, that, that flushes out these issues and the flags, you know, turn red and, red, red and green. And by the time you're ready to lock down a relationship, which, by the way, is not when you get married, it's when you have children. By the time you're ready to really lock it down, you've got that information and our job is really to get people just to pay attention to it. And so one other red flag I would just add to our list while we're at it, which comes off that point that you just made. I, I would see it as a red flag if anyone is rushing the dating process, if they're rushing into um, saying I love you, rushing into wanting to get you into bed, rushing into wanting to move in together. They're all pretty big red flags that we want to watch out for. And I do work with a lot of women who have come out of a divorce and they're just starting to date again and they're looking for support with getting back into the scene and how do we navigate that. And the one thing I really hope we can all understand is particularly our role as women, our ability to set the pace of a relationship because, yes, often the men that we were dating will push a bit hard for it to go a certain way, but it's really them kind of testing us and it's about us stepping up and laying warm and kind boundaries along the way. But setting that pace and setting the standard for how it's going to go and making sure that things don't evolve too fast. I don't know if you've just seen, I watched on the weekend, The Tinder Swindler, which has just come out on Netflix. I saw the um, promotion of it. Like I haven't dived into it, but yeah. It was very well done, very good documentary. But 
basically playing with how this guy scammed all of these women through Tinder out of so much money. But there was definitely that pattern there of him pushing things along very fast and making the emotional connection seem really deep and personal Mm -hmm. from the beginning, which he was very good at what he did. He was very good at creating that energy of, you know, you're my one and only, and yet he had multiple women that he was telling this to on the time. So that's, again, why we want to go slow and take our time to really get to know someone. I have watched some of that show. My wife watched the whole thing, but it was very interesting. One of the things we write about in the book that would have effectively avoided this whole problem is the importance of getting to know the family and friends of the person that you're dating. Yeah. And in the, in this story, and I watched the first 45 minutes of it uh, where they spoke about how these three very intelligent, bright women, and that was why I think that the documentary has gotten the traction it has, is these weren't silly, gullible women. But one of the things that they did not do was get to know his family or his friends. And there is so much information that comes out of that. You, you can't be a con man and have family and friends who don't convey that in some way. Usually they don't have family or friends, but their family and friends will know that, you know, he's had, he's got three girlfriends going at once. He's never had a long-term relationship. All that really simple information that, you know, gives you these huge, huge clues. And so one of the things, if we can give it straight to your listeners, is you do not allow yourself to get very far in a relationship until you have met the, the person you're dating their friends and yeah, family. Such good advice. You, know, you want to meet their, if you can meet their close friends, if you can meet their, their siblings and preferably get them drunk, <laughs> they will then tell you. Yes, they will. They will then tell you everything about the person that you're dating. It's an incredibly quick way to get information. Best of all, if you can actually catch up with the ex-wife or ex-partner, get them drunk, oh they'll tell gosh. you all about your partner. <laughs> Best advice ever. <laughs> <laughs> The point, the point is that you don't rely on it necessarily, but like we're talking about what you were saying about looking at flags, you know, obviously exes are going to be bitter and, and have a slanted view, but my God, they can also give you a lot of very good information that you can look out for and see if, as Jiv said, that pattern is building. It's, it, we're more about looking for patterns than, than one-off. That's right, because it could just be the fact that they ended up divorced or separating or whatever just because they were ill-suited to each other, not because there's some sort of pathological, Absolutely. you know, they're a pathological lie. Or, or have something. they learnt from their mistakes? <laughs> yeah. Well, this brings us to mm. how we, when that question comes up on a date, how we language our own answers and how we, what we listen for in the other person's answers. So, Ideally, I mean, most of us do have a history with a significant relationship when we're dating. And so the way that we talk about that is important. And I think taking responsibility, when you can talk about it in a way that shows the person that you're dating that you're able to see your role in the relationship and when you can talk about, yeah, this happened, but this is what I learned from it and this is what I'm taking forward now, that's a very attractive quality. And true. you want to see that in the way they talk about it too. If they're talking about what a crazy bitch their ex was, mm. yeah. like run for the hills if they're not yeah. taking any responsibility for that at all. Yeah, yeah. good, good point. And you want, all the, the, you want them to talk about their partner with respect, just not oh. too much of a kind of a stalkerish fascination, <laughs> <Yeah>. still respect. <laughs> but putting all this together, I can see why, George, you did mention about those, the ideal age to get into a serious relationship because you've got to look into all these like subtleties of someone's character and their personality, don't you? So obviously the more mature you are and the more life experience you have under your belt, the more likely you are to be able to tap into those things and read them. 
and look for those behaviours and, and things like that without having a notebook there, you know, like a checklist or whatever. We've just brought up another issue that is a different important issue, which we might just touch on while we're sitting on the edge of it, which is about where is that person in getting over their last relationship? Because if they're talking about their previous relationship with a lot of emotion, particularly negative emotion, then that means one of two things in simple terms. What Jib has just spoken about in terms of the fact that if they're not, if they if they if they describe their previous sorry their previous partner as this crazy stupid bitch, and they don't recognize that they fell in love and married that person, there is something that these people are not very insightful. But the second part about it is if they're that angry, then that also tells us they very probably haven't moved on yet. And you do not want to be getting into a relationship with somebody who has not moved on from their previous relationship. So you've got to be, I mean, the, the, the problem here is that people do fall in love and it does look great and then things do, do go very badly, as we've said, for no other reason that they were getting married too young. Maybe there was some duplicitous behaviour and that's something we do have to give potential credit for. Yep. That somebody was tricked or somebody did misrepresent who they were and then the other partner finds out about that and then, you know, things fall apart for all the right reasons. But the point I wanted to just, again, quickly give to your listeners here is that if you're dating somebody who is speaking negatively in emotional terms about their partner, even if they're accurate, then they may well not have moved on far enough yet to be able to re-enter a new relationship from where you need them to be. So at that point, what do you do? Take a break, slow down. Put the brakes on, just say, let's take some time here. Actually, one of the things that, that follows from, from that point, Mel, is a lot of people seem to forget that prior to being in a committed relationship, you're not in a committed relationship. And the number of people, I think it's happening a bit less now with the millennial generation, and Jeff, you can speak to this maybe, but that a lot of people are monogamous daters. They start dating somebody and they don't date anybody else, even though they're not committed in the relationship yet. And so they let the relationship evolve without any comparison with anybody else, even though they're not exclusive because they get exclusive when the point at which you both verbally agree to be exclusive, which a lot of people, again, forget to actually. And there's a lot of hurt and pain when one thinks they're in, a, in, a, in a, an agreed one-on-one committed relationship and the other person doesn't think that at all, which is why I'm always saying to dating couples, do you know the status of your relationship? Because if you don't, you need to be checking with your partner. It's a simple conversation. Hey, do you want to be exclusive or don't you? I mean, it's a it's a laden one because everybody's worried about being rejected, but it's a critical one because if they say, no, I don't, I don't see myself in a committed relationship just yet, then you need to know that because that means they're dating other people. And you should be dating other people as well. Yeah. The other thing is, this is such a great point because we have like, we talk about this quite a lot in the book, the difference between dating around and sleeping around and how I actually really suggest, particularly when we're in the early stages of getting back out into the dating scene, that we do take that liberty to date around, which is different to sleeping around. That's not what I'm suggesting, but taking it slow, looking at building the connection first and foremost, because when we're in that position of dating multiple people at a time, First of all, it gets us to ask better questions. So instead of just asking ourselves in our head, like, is this person good enough to keep seeing? Oh, they're not that bad. They haven't done anything too wrong. I just, I guess, 
see where it goes versus when we're dating multiple people, then we start to ask ourselves, okay, so who's actually the best match for us? Who's actually bringing the best out in us? And we can see these different qualities that these different people will have side by side and make a much better call. Mm. I tell you, it that, does take courage. Yeah, absolutely. it's a really important point. And getting back to what you said before, George, as well, it takes courage to say, are we in a committed relationship, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. It even yeah. takes courage to ask yourself all the questions because sometimes you you don't want to know the answer. And the answer can be staring you in the face. And you don't want to be seen as being a stage five clinger, as they say. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. We don't want but that. But I think too... That question is so important and I think maybe the reason that we don't always ask it is, yes, the fear of rejection, but also too I could imagine if it was me in that position and I liked the person, there's a sense of loyalty and uh, kindness of treating people how you want to be treated. So I guess that asking that question goes, well, you know, I'm being kind and asking you that question. But if I was seeing someone and going on dates... I guess it's that assumption. So what I'd suggest to is... Does that make sense? Around the second date, when we, if we're talking about dating around, around the second date is a really good time to just casually mention, you know, um, I've just started dating again. I'm interested in meeting all different people. Um, you're the second date I've been on. I really want to keep seeing you. This is great. But just so you know, I'm also going to be seeing other people. And the good thing about that is it also, I think particularly for men, I think men do thrive in competition. True. And ah. if they like us, then that gets their gears going like, oh, well, she's dating other people. I've got to like really bring out my best. And it might also lead him to take the initiative with that conversation as well. You know, can we be exclusive? Yeah. And so making that clear on the second date too is the best time to do it because if you wait too long past the second date, then it can get a bit awkward. Mm. You can feel like it's a bit of a grey area. Whereas the second date, he's not going to take offence to that. Like, of course yeah. you're seeing other people. You've only, like, met him once before this. Mm. If they do take offence to that, yep. then you've got a problem. That's, yeah, that, yeah. That's a red a, flag. That's, it's a red that's flag. A, that's a red flag, yeah. If, if there's this sense of ownership over you, which that will flush out very quickly, mm. uh, that, 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 that is something you need to know about. But I think, Trish, I hear what you're saying about the reluctance to have these conversations, but it's for exactly these reasons we need to have these conversations. And one of the things that Jib is, I think you gave a few examples in the book, Jib, because you're more at this space, obviously, than I am, of ways in which we can discuss this, which isn't that big a deal. You know, it, it really should be a fairly obvious thing to be asking. And yeah. we just need to get more practised at just bringing it up. And, you know, at the second date and maybe at the fourth date, we say, you know, so what are you looking for in a relationship? Early on you mentioned this, you know, you still want to keep it casual. And guys will answer these questions. And, and you need to know because, you know, so often I see my patients go in a different direction from their partners. In fact, I almost would suggest they don't want to ask because they want to run the fantasy in their head that this relationship is going somewhere. Yeah. And they, and they, and they don't want to find out. And that they're, they're setting themselves up for enormous hurt and pain when they haven't had this discussion. And that's why I come back to this point that you've got to remember you're not exclusive until you're exclusive, until you've had an agreement that yep. you are exclusive. Jib, you told me a story that I found fascinating. When you remember you were living with those two guys in Melbourne? Yeah. And and the three of you, and this is two blokes, had this agreement of having, was it a 10 or 12 date rule where you had no sex? Yeah, no, my housemate. And he was such a ladies' man, very attractive, good-looking man, very charming. And he knew what he was doing. And 
he was telling us one night how he's experimenting with what he called the 10-date rule. And so he would go on dates with women for 10 dates and he wouldn't make a move on them. He'd just be there genuinely to connect with them. And if he still liked them after 10 dates, then he might consider making them his girlfriend. And I think the beauty of that, it's a little bit unexpected coming from a man. We kind of expect him to make the move if he's interested. But the beauty of that is that he really got to connect with these women on a different level. And also playing with tension is important in the relationship. This is why we love TV shows and movies is because they play with tension. Stories play with tension. It's the unresolved ending when you don't know how it's going to all pan out. And we need to bring this into dating because so often people say, oh, I find it so hard to find chemistry and connection, which is a whole nother story. We do recommend you don't want to go looking for chemistry, but you want to be creating chemistry as you go along. And I think the important thing to understand about online dating is because of the way that it's set up, where we're looking at photos and like a snippet of detail about someone, we very quickly jump to assumptions about who that person is. And it means by the time we show up on the first date, a lot of the mystery is gone. And so it's actually that mystery that often creates chemistry. It's the unknown and the unfolding. We've created a story, a backstory ourselves. Yeah, exactly. We kind of typecast this person. Which is a projection, by the way. Absolutely. Mm. That, that, that's, that's part of the other issue that's happening there. You get a certain amount of information, but not enough to interfere with what you want to project onto the other person, which allows you to create this sense of who they are as your fantasy potential partner being the one. And we probably need to come back to the issue of the one a little bit more at some point. But equally, what doesn't work is just throwing all of your cards out on the table on the first date. And so being willing to play with the tension, both sexual tension, but also the energetic tension of getting to know someone and, uh, you know, leaving a few cards up your sleeve to surprise them, that's going to help create chemistry. Mm. George, in the book, you suggest to keep away from nines and tens. That's intriguing. I have my thoughts. Don't love anyone that loves themselves more than you, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) We'd love you to share your meaning behind this, your why. I'm intrigued too. Okay. This is going to take us into a little bit of an understanding of how attraction works, you see. And this is a little bit hard to get your head around. But basically, when we work out, or we don't even work it out, when we find ourselves attracted to somebody, what we're dealing with is a process where our unconscious mind has recognized certain things in them. Now, we might think that it's about their physical appearance, but that usually has much less to do with it than the media would suggest to us. And I'm sure we've all had the experience of sitting there beside a friend, looking at a member of the opposite sex, and we go, my God, isn't he or she, you know, spectacularly beautiful? And the person beside us goes, no, I could take it or leave it. You know, and what's happening is there's a whole other thing that goes into attraction, which isn't just about how good looking. In fact, a very quick research finding I came across years ago which was that when you looked at beautiful model, supermodel-type women and you asked how attracted men felt to them, most men did not find them very attractive in real life. And it was fascinating why. It was because they were intimidated by the, the, the women and they, didn't, they expected to be rejected by them. And they, but, but the other factor that the writers didn't talk about, which goes into this whole body of research, which is called a Margot theory, which is what I'm about to talk about, is that attraction is built on so many other things than physical appearance. In fact, there could be certain aspects of physical appearance that we're very drawn to, 
because of Imago theory. So what's Imago theory? It tells us that attraction is built around a need to resolve our childhood wounds by finding people who are similar to the caregivers who wounded us. And this time, firstly, start a relationship with them, but this time around, get them to love us and not wound us. Now think about how problematic that is. Because if you had, for example, an alcoholic parent, and this is a fairly classic example I've seen several cases of, what happens is the children of alcoholics are often drawn to partners who are alcoholics because this time around they're going to get that person to love them and heal that deep wound. And I remember but the first time I saw this, because I didn't really kind of believe this stuff early on in my sort of psychotherapy experiences, but then I saw this woman who had married four men who were all alcoholics. And that's not as surprising as the next part, which was all of them were not drinking when she married them. So that is, and some of them she knew, I think one or two she might have known was an ex-alcoholic, but the other ones she had no idea that they were alcoholic. They, 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 were, they just didn't drink and they were just, you know, teetotals. But her unconscious knows exactly what the alcoholic mind looks like, right? Yeah, that's extraordinary. And she, she nailed it in a way that, that I as a therapist could not. She could pick these alcoholics from across the room without any indication they were alcoholics because they had so many of the particular traits that alcoholics have, right? That's the power of this process of attraction. Now, guess what happens when you have a 9 or 10 out of, out of 10 level of attraction to somebody? You are being drawn to the people who not only just have these traits of your childhood, the traits of the caregivers from your childhood growing up, but guess what? These are the ones who have the traits that wounded you the most. So the people you're most intensely attracted to are the people who've got the capacity to hurt you the most. And these are the whirlwind relationships where people fall madly in love. It's it's the love of their life. They've met the one. They make movies about this stuff, right? You know, Bonnie and Clyde are are probably a good example. And and Bonnie and Clyde's, you know, relationship ended in the hail of bullets, which was probably an easier way for them to go than quietly murdering each other over with words over their lifetime because we, when you have these intense attractions, you have this incredible whirlwind experience. But what happens is after a while you start to realise that this person has some very particular traits, the other side of the coin that you were drawn to that is, now, that is now annoying the hell out of you. And this complexity is what, you know, really sits behind attraction, which is, of course, a whole book on its own. And there's actually, Harville Hendricks writes about this beautifully. And we could put a book in the show notes, uh, which I get most of my patients to, to, to read, which is Getting the Love You Want. I know Jim's very familiar with the book. I think you use it with your clients. And there's another book you use of his too. What, what's that one, Jim? Keeping the Love You Find was the follow-up one that he wrote specifically for single people. And I found that really fascinating because it goes into more depth about um, the different developmental stages we go through through childhood and how being wounded at these different stages can affect us as adults. Yeah. And I think we discount that a lot. I don't think people really pay enough attention to that. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's why, and this is this is quite a complex area, so that's why we come back to the fact that we really want to be in relationships with people who are, you know, five, six, seven, maybe eight. I say eights are questionable depending on how much insight they have. If, they, if you've got an eight that, that's done some therapy and knows themselves, then they're, they're, they're good. But an insightless eight 
could be a problem for you. Sixes and sevens are ideals. The reason why we can't go one, two, three is because there's not enough sexual chemistry. And yeah, so right. there is just nothing to carry you through the relationship. Yep. And just one so thing I'd add, add to add that. Yeah. So just one thing I'd add to that for anyone who's single and dating who's listening to this. When I've talked about the scale with people before, because it is really helpful to understand this, and we're not just talking about physical attraction, I just want to reiterate, it's the whole package of how you feel around this person. But so often when we go on dates, we come at it with an attitude that, especially on the first date, we're going to figure out, is it a yes or is it a no? It's very black and white. And so in the beginning, when we talk about this scale, a lot of people have trouble orienting themselves to that scale. And so our suggestion is to start feeling into this. When you go on a date, rather than just reaching for that, is there a yes or a no? Is there chemistry? Isn't there? Thinking about, okay, if there was a scale of one to 10, with one being completely unattracted or maybe even repulsed by this person, (laughs) and 10 being that love at first sight, instant infatuation, attraction, where would this person sit on that scale? And I tend to think of like maybe around a five is like a basis for friendship. You like them enough to want to hang out with them and get to know them. You're not sure if there's any sexual attraction there, but it's still a good starting point Mm. because ultimately we're going for a slow burn. That's where the healthiest relationships tend to come from. Not starting with that high nine and 10 attraction from the beginning, because that is often based on this projection and this fantasy. And it's very easy for us when we decide that we like someone to pander to them and to, you know, want to make it work and make excuses for their red flags. Sacrifice what we want in the. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And we want to be aware of that because it's not the road to a healthy long-term relationship. That kind of leads into, you know, a lot of people talk about the honeymoon period. You know, obviously when you've met someone, it's all exciting and it's all romantic, but then the honeymoon period, what happens after that? (laughs) Yeah. Well, what I was going to say too, just with that, with the, when we go for the nines and tens, you can only kind of go downhill from there. (laughs) Whereas when we're starting with a five or six or a seven, you can actually build to those levels of nine and ten attraction and it's much more sustainable because you're basing it on the person that you've gotten to know over time rather than this fantasy of them. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we do need to be careful. We do need to make it past the honeymoon phase in order to make a a good decision or a good evaluation of the person that we might decide to commit ourselves to. Yeah, so if I can come in on the back of that, you really don't know who you're going to be in a relationship with until the honeymoon phase is over. And so getting into committing, as so many people do, to moving in, God forbid, you know, getting pregnant, let alone getting you know, married during the honeymoon phase is so dangerous because we all want to have that incredibly romantic, emotionally driven period. One of the rules I have is when I'm working with with one of my with, with a patient who is finally in a relationship and and they're in the honeymoon phase, I say, look, I'm not going to do much therapy with you right now because I want you just to enjoy it. And you know, t- therapy does tend to kind of make it too clinical and, and deconstruct it. So I'll say, but but I'm happy to leave you in it. Just don't make any commitments during this phase, right? Yeah. Don't commit to moving. Don't don't let yourself get pregnant. Don't 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 agree to get married. Just enjoy the, the honeymoon phase. It's a wonderful period in life. We're we're, we're built. To, to, to have this wonderful experience and, and, and that's something we should allow them to do. Quick question for you, Dad. Um, so how would you know if the honeymoon phase is over? What would you look yeah. for? <laughs> yeah, it's when you have your first big fight and, and <laughs> one of the, the, the simplest things to do, if you want to end the honeymoon, move in together, okay, because what 
keeps the honeymoon alive is only spending time with each other when you're on your best behaviour. Yeah. You need to see each other in your pyjamas. And, yes. and, and that, that is the, the, the shift. Yes. And in fact, Hubble Hendricks writes beautifully about this. The phase after the honeymoon phase, by the way, is called the power struggle. And that is when people sit back and go, right, we've had this wonderful experience. This person is there to meet my needs. And now I'm going to sit back and enjoy it while they now look after me. And you have two people doing that or maybe one doing it more than the other. And all of a sudden, we now have the honeymoon come crashing to an end. And now we find out who we're in a relationship with, really. And that's, I think that brings us nicely into what I wanted to just finish up on, because I know we're tight on time, which is, is how we define love. Because love is not that honeymoon you know, experience. It is, that has nothing to do with what I would call true love. In fact, there's some research showing that going back to our nines and tens discussion, the more intense the sense of attraction early on, the higher the divorce rate. Why? Because of all the things we've just spoken about. So what is the love that we build a long-term relationship on? And I would suggest that that is built around two things. Firstly, it is an acceptance of the other person despite knowing their shortcomings. Now, if you think about that, that acceptance, then you've got to have something to accept. You've got to know the other person's shortcomings, which means you've got to have been vulnerable. You've got to have shared your vulnerabilities. And these, of course, come out over time. You know, just again, if, yeah. if people are in a relationship long enough, they get anxious about a job. They get scared about having to give a presentation. They get worried about their health. And if they talk about these things with their partners. But, of course, the other thing we do is we make mistakes and our partners see us make mistakes. So that's the first half, if you like, of, of the way I define the love, the true love that will will determine the you know, whether we'll have a lifelong relationship or not, is that is that full acceptance of the other person despite their shortcomings. And then the, the, the other half of true love is a commitment to nurturing personal growth in ourselves and the other person. And to fully understand what I'm getting at there, we need to just take a, a, a quick diversion into arranged marriages because arranged marriages are better at avoiding divorce than love marriages. And we're, we're running an experiment that began about 200 years ago, the West, where we decided to go down a different path from what the world's done since the beginning of time, and, ha- and more than half the world still does, which is have arranged marriages. So the, the love marriage is, is, is this experiment that we're running, and based on our divorce rates, we fucked it up pretty well. Oh, I can't say that, can I? You can <laughs> yeah, you can. Yes, you Absolutely can. Absolutely, you can. 100%. All for well, the, as I said, our divorce rate exceeds 40%. Yep. Right? The divorce rate amongst, amongst arranged marriages is less than 10. Wow. Now, of course, pe- people go, yeah, but that's, you know, you've got women caught in horrible relationships and, and they can't get out because of the culture. Hmm. And there is undoubtedly an element of that. But then there's some fascinating research, which is why we need to rethink all of this. And this research came out of California. And what they did is they looked at the happiness of couples in arranged marriages over time. Now, when they start off, because you can, it's very easy to get a couple to evaluate, you know, questionnaire, interview, and tell you how much they feel in love and how happy they are in their relationship. That's not hard to work out. At the beginning, if we take a group of arranged marriages and a group of love marriages, at the beginning, the love marriages rate higher than the arranged marriages, as you would expect. These arranged marriages begin with two people who hardly know each other. And they've just been put in, into a, not a room together, into a house, a bed together. And they've got to work it out. Come back five years later, 
and now it's reversed. Now the happiness in the arranged marriages is exceeding that in the love marriages. Come back 10 years later and the happiness in the arranged marriages is around double that in the love marriages. What's going on? And this is what leads into the final point I want to make, which is how we think about love. Because what the arranged marriages are doing is something that a love marriage doesn't have to do. And that is that they are building their love over time. And the magic word that sits behind that is the word I used before, which is commitment. You see, the arranged marriage is going with a commitment to make it work. What happens in a love marriage is in, in the West, we go into it with the hope it'll work based on the love carrying us through. Right back to Jib's point earlier that, you know, we think we're told that love is enough and it just isn't. Commitment is enough. And that's what the arranged marriages show us. So there's so, an assumption with the love marriages. Absolutely. There's an, there's an assumption and, 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 and there's hope. There's the hope that the love will carry us through. And as they say, hope is not a plan. <laughs> no, it's not. So, so what we've got in the, in the arranged marriages is, and I'm not suggesting that we go back to arranged marriages. I mean, I think that we'd have more stability for children if we did, but there are problems with that. But what I am suggesting is we take the best of an arranged marriage and we apply it in love marriages. And that is recognising that what makes a marriage hold together over time is this commitment to nurturing uh, the personal growth of our partner and ourselves. And I just want to just tease those two things apart. If you just nurture the personal growth of your partner and don't nurture your own, then you're a martyr and you're not going to be a fun partner, right? Because then there's an expectation that your partner will nurture your growth. Now, this is something that we want to do for our partner, but it's not something we should expect from them because our partners can't always nurture our growth. There'll be times when they're depressed, unhappy, stressed, dealing with children, work-related work problems. They can't be there for us. And in those times, we've got to look after ourselves. And that's why it's a commitment to nurturing both our partner's personal growth and our own. In effect, we have to love ourselves. And then the final point I want to make about that is that if we're going to nurture our partner's personal growth, that requires empathy. We need to know them. We need to, we need to know their, their vulnerabilities. We need to know what they most need if we are going to nurture their growth. And that requires vulnerability. It requires intimacy. It requires trust to get that right. So by effectively, and we can know if we're nurturing our, our partner's personal growth, we can ask this very scary question, which probably I reckon about 50% of my patients will actually do when I suggest that they that they try it out with their partner, which is go to your partner and say, how good a partner do you think I'm being for you? How much do you feel I'm nurturing your personal growth? Yep. And a lot of people find that scary. I think That's... if I said that to my partner, he would think that I was lining him up. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to throw you, you're going to throw him under a bus. <laughs> yeah. Good question. Well, put put the right way. It actually is a very good, useful question because your partner will tell yeah, you. Yeah, no, for I sure. agree. Yeah, yeah, they will. Your partner yep. will tell you what it is that they feel that you. Particularly if you if you use it, we're not talking about you know being a better slave to them. We're talking no, about no, no, no. Yeah, I, yeah. If I'm nurturing your personal growth, whatever your personal growth means to you, we don't care. It doesn't really matter. But if I'm nurturing your personal growth, well, you will know. And if there's more you think I can do, please tell me what that is. Yeah. And, what we do is we've just demystified love and we've, we've brought in something which we know works. Arranged marriages prove that it works. And that's why I don't think it's terribly difficult to defend this new way of, of, of defining true love. 
No, I think that's brilliant. And I think the point of the vulnerability of recognising that we all have you know, shortcomings or imperfections and those imperfections are part of being human mm. and that we just love the other person or accept them as they are, knowing that we're all just trying to do our best. Mm. It's it's such a complex topic, isn't it? I mean, honestly, we could sit here all day, well, couldn't yes, we? Yes, we could. Like um, there's so much to deep dive on. Um, Jiminy, I just I do want to ask you this final question and that is would you have a singular piece of advice for making the biggest decision of your life? Probably the biggest thing that I've learned through my own experience is that, and this is kind of an odd way to say it or an odd thing to say perhaps, but that great partners can come in unexpected packaging. And this kind of goes back to what we were saying before about avoiding the nines and tens because I think so often we go out looking for this imaginary man or person that we have in our mind And it can set us up for failure, looking for love in literally all the wrong places. And so being willing to take things slow and to give people a bit more of a chance to get to know them over time and to build that connection and to explore their potential because sometimes we can be a bit dismissive. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, curiosity is the key word, isn't it? Bringing that that curiosity to dating and enjoying the journey as much as you can. There's a lot of beauty that can happen there. And as you guys said earlier, if you if you find the right person, you're probably not going to be single again. So enjoy it while it lasts. So, yeah, right. Yeah, what true. What do they say? Go forth and kiss a lot of frogs or toads or <laughs> <laughs> slay a lot of dragons. So something like that. <laughs> I don't know. Well, George and Jiminy, thank you so much. I'm so honoured and it's been such a privilege to have you both here again. And Jiminy, we'd like to put you on the spot because Mel and I have a lot of single friends in their 50s and I think that what you are doing with the dating coaching is absolutely wonderful. And um, I'm wondering if you would come again and talk to us all about what you do. I would love to, absolutely. (laughs) And, George, you're always welcome. Any day (laughs) of the week. Fascinating. (laughs) There is so much to unpack out of today's episode, so we are going to put lots of links on our show notes to George and Jiminy's book. There's the other books that George mentioned as well, and we've also got websites of where you can find both George and Jiminy and um, some of the other articles and blogs they've written. So check it out, 50 That's it from us today. Don't forget you can follow us on Instagram at don'tgiver50 or email us at hello at don'tgiver50.com.au. And remember our gorgeous 50 issues, life is for living, don't give a 50 because we're all 50 and awesome regardless of age and living is an absolute privilege. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.